like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nourish by Nature Made, the number one pharmacist-recommended vitamin and supplement brand. Nourish is a personalized vitamin regimen customized to you. Backed by 45 years of science, they remove the guesswork from your vitamin regimen. With thousands of happy customers, Nourish is a trusted supplement brand by many. Visit Nourish.com to create your customized package today. This episode is brought to you by Nourish by Nature Made, the number one pharmacist-recommended vitamin and supplement brand. Nourish is a personalized vitamin regimen customized to you. Backed by 45 years of science, they remove the guesswork from your vitamin regimen. With thousands of happy customers, Nourish is a trusted supplement brand by many. Visit Nourish.com to create your customized package today. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. I will tell you what happened though too is I had my way of dressing which was a little bit different from my fellow journalists at the LA Times and I got cornered one day in the hall by an editor and they were starting a different style section. She said, you know, it looks like you like to dress up. Do you ever want to write about fashion? And I was like, yeah, of course. Especially when I found out it was paying twice as much as what I was going to make covering city politics, which is unfortunate. (laughs) Hi everybody, it's Jamie. And Amy, and this is Clever. Today we're talking to Rose Apodaca. Rose is co-founder of popular Los Angeles-based retail store, showroom, and design resource called A Plus R. Prior to starting A Plus R, she helped define West Coast lifestyle, fashion, and pop culture as a journalist for more than 25 years. She was the West Coast Bureau Chief of Fashion Industry Bible, Women's Wear Daily, and a contributor to W Magazine. And her features have appeared in Harper's Bazaar, Elle, Glamour, Paper, and Seven Hollywood, where she also served as a consultant and editorial director at large. She's also an author with three books under her belt with subjects such as Rachel Zoe, Fred Heyman, and Dita Von Teese. In general, she's a stylish, multi-passionate woman with a can-do attitude and undying enthusiasm for both international design and her city of Los Angeles. So let's talk to Rose. I'm 
Rose Apodaca. I'm based in Los Angeles and I am the, the co-founder of A Plus R, a design resource here in Los Angeles. I'm also a writer and creative director of fashion and beauty books. I guess those are my two primary gigs, but I'm a woman of many hats. Many fashionable hats. No, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I try. <laughs> I want to go back to the beginning. I want to know all about where you grew up and what your family was like and what kind of a kid you were. All right. Well, I guess I should start in terms of putting it into context with the fact that my parents are 23 years apart. And I make that note because I do think that influenced a bit of who I've become. My father is originally from New Mexico. He was born in the late 1920s. So he came of age during the the depression. And he met my mother in the late sixties in Madrid. She's from Spain and he was an aerospace engineer. And I do speak of him in the past because he passed away in 91, but they met, she was a secretary at the, at the sister company for Northrop and which is a company based in Southern California. And they met and they got married after a month. And she had never been out of Spain. She grew up in Franco, Spain, And, you know, was quite, I think, brave to come to Southern California as a 21, 22-year-old. And I was born within the year. And I grew up basically in Southern California, which also, I think, very much shaped me. I grew up in, uh, in El Segundo, which is right outside of LAX. It was a very lovely suburban town to grow up in. It was during the 70s. And my memories are quite fond of just like running around with all the neighborhood kids on our big wheels and, and literally like going so far away from our house. I wish my kid could have that kind of a life now here in LA. We had a silent movie theater nearby that we would go and hang out at. And that also shaped my interest in cinema and in vintage. My mom is an artist and, and a craftsperson as well, but she's also the kind of person who would decide, you know, she wanted to like install tile on the floor and the walls in the kitchen. And so with no experience, just questions to the people at the tile store, she would do it herself. And she would paint the mural and fire it in her, in her kiln. You know, it was constantly like that growing up and which I always laugh is always a challenge for the men in my life because they would say, oh, you know, we can't do that. And I'd be like, well, I can call my mom and she'll do it, you know, in so far as like anything, wallpapering, whatever it is. But she also does some very fine art as well with like, you know, carving ostrich eggs with dental tools and mural painting and, and that sort of thing. So we grew up in a household where we just got to do, you know, a lot of creative things and had freedom, but there were definitely limitations. I mean, I just had to get one look from my mom to know I had to stay in line. <laughs> Let me put it that way. I have a younger sister who's a year younger than me. Her name's Blanca Apodaca, and she is the quintessential artist, a musician, songwriter, painter, published children's book, illustrator, and writer. So we grew up in El Segundo until I was at age nine. Then we relocated to Orange County, to Huntington Beach, and then Fountain Valley, where I went to high school. Around age 12, I discovered live music and going to nightclubs. And as long as I kept my grades up, which I did, I had a two o'clock curfew all through my high school years and would come up to Hollywood four or five nights a week and dance like a crazy woman in the whole rockabilly scene. And 
I was much younger than my friends who would drive me up here and who, who were very much served as protective big brothers. It was a really wonderful existence because I was exposed to so much live music, street culture, you know, during the 80s was really amazing because people were, you know, they all had their own scenes in terms of the goth scene, the rockabilly scene, mods, all of that. But people really were very into really dressing up in a way that I haven't seen since then. Mm. Even when I used to cover street tribes in the 90s for the LA Times, I didn't see it to the as much detail oriented as it existed in the 80s. Growing up in Southern California, I think one of the things I also loved is, you know, it's a state where anything is possible from, I mean, literally, you could surf in the morning and snowboard in the afternoon, which I had to exemplify in a fashion shoot one year. <laughs> you can, you know, start your own record company in your garage. Really, there, there's no limitations, which is so great. I would speak to relatives in other countries, in Spain and elsewhere, and there was this sort of sense of like, this is what you're going to do in life and that's it. But I never grew up with that limitation with those parameters. I always just figured, you know, if I wanted to go after something, I'd be able to professionally or otherwise. Well, that sounds like a fascinating teenage life. I want to unpack that a little bit. So growing up, going all that live music, participating in all those cultural scenes, it sounds like you weren't rebelling necessarily because you had a good home life and you're Mom had rules in place. Yeah. You got good grades. Yeah. You were just participating in all the culture that was on offer to you. Yeah. The funny thing is, like, I'll never forget when I was 14, I think I was a sophomore in school, and I went to, you know, Fountain Valley High School had like 4,000 kids there. It was a very big school, very sports minded, which I was not. And the dean came up to me because I had, I arrived at school with electric blue hair, a very sort of Lana Turner hairstyle and electric <laughs> blue. And he said, you know, we're going to have to call your mother about this. And I was like, you can call her. She was at the hair salon with me till 1am getting this done. So, you know, and this is back in the day when you couldn't, you know, you now I laugh when I go to CVS and I see all these, you know, rainbow colored dyes available. But yeah, this is back where you'd have to go to a specific, you know, salon 45 minutes away. And yeah, unfortunately, they, it's, I spent, you know, seven hours in the chair trying to get that electric blue because my hair is naturally black. So my mother was very patient. I'm very encouraging. <laughs> so can you give us some cultural touchstones? Like, so what were the bands that you were going to see? Yeah, my very favorite band was the Blasters. They are from Long Beach. And in fact, the singer Phil Alvin was a teacher at Cal State Long Beach, where I went to school later for journalism. That was one of my favorite bands. And also actually X, which wasn't a rockabilly band, but they and the Blasters played a lot of shows together. And But there were other bands too, like the James Enfeld band and Ricky Enfeld, who later died in an accident with Ricky Nelson. And the Wild Cards, which was a sort of Chicano swing rockabilly band. And all these people, one of the things that was really amazing about my parents is, you know, we lived again in Fountain Valley, Orange County, but, but the first Friday of the month, if there wasn't a good show in LA, San Diego, or Orange County, my parents would let all these musicians and friends come to our house. They would jam all night till 6 a.m. Then we'd all go to Caro's for breakfast. And, you know, at this time, I was like 14, 15, 16 years old, and these guys were all five, six, seven, eight years older than me, but they were super respectful in our house. They loved my mom, and nobody would be drinking in front of my mom or smoking in our house because that was not allowed. But 
they were all allowed to do that stuff in the garage, which got transformed into sort of a rumpus room. It was kind of amazing, you know, and then my sister was involved in the whole mod scene and then the hippie mm-hmm. scene and all of her friends, same thing. They'd be playing guitar all night and, and writing music. But again, we had to keep our grades up and, you know, yeah, in high school, I graduated in the top 20 of 750 kids and I went straight into journalism school at Cal State Long Beach. And what made you get interested in journalism in the first place? Walter Cronkite. (laughs) I mean, honestly, since I was five years old, that's what I was going to become. So even when we would travel to Spain to visit my mom's family, I would have a little recorder and I would tape record the tour guides or, you know, once we got pulled out of school for a month to travel around Europe and I, my project I proposed and I did was a whole magazine on my trip. And this is before computers. We didn't have PCs. You know, I was cutting and pasting and doing, taking the photographs and doing that all myself. So I pretty much was destined to go into that arena. Mm. And in my third year of school, Long Beach State, and I was the editor of the school magazine, I applied for a scholarship and interviewed with a couple of editors of the LA Times who had just started the Orange County offices there. And because I spoke English and Spanish and they saw what I was already doing at school, they asked me if I wanted to come in for an interview because they were starting this group of stringers that were going to be covering the Orange County cities. And I showed up. They were so crazy on deadline. They couldn't even interview. They just basically gave me a job. So I started at the LA Times as a full-time reporter with... My colleagues were all graduated from school and had already professional experience. And I was so I was the youngest one of the group, but I started doing that my junior year at Cal State Long Beach. So I was working full time at the LA Times, going to school full time, editor of the school magazine, and also still maintain a very social life, going to live bands and all of that. I also was living with my skateboarder boyfriend who had moved out from Florida to work in the skateboard industry that was brand new at the time. And well, in in all the world, but also Southern California. And so I was very involved in the action sports industry because of him and my friends that were, you know, all part of it. So it was another wave of a lot of exposure to new cultures, new people. You know, when I look back, I have a lot of different groups from a lot of different periods of my life, and some of them have intersected. And, you know, it's it's been a really fun life so far. (laughs) It sounds like it. Wait, I have questions. So the the point at which you're a junior in in college and a full-time reporter for the LA Times, this is the late 80s, the early 90s? Yeah. So it's 1990, 91. 91 is when I graduated from Cal State Long Beach. So like 89, 90, 91. Okay. That makes sense. And then I want to know, what were you covering for the LA Times? Were you like doing all kinds of stuff or culture? Well, when I, when I was brought on board, it was to cover city politics. And I was usually given cities with Spanish pop language populations like Santa Ana, Placentia. I would go to city council meetings, did planning commission meetings, you know, people, stories, you know, the woman who turned 100, go interview her, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. But also because of my language abilities and because of my age and because I asked for it, I would also go occasionally on gang detail with the police and I would dress also, you know, like in Dickies and my Doc Martin shoes and, and sort of try to relate to and, and you know, I, I started doing a lot of coverage with people that were not that far off from me in age, but they allowed me into their circles because 
I, I didn't try to pretend ever to speak their language, but they felt like they could connect with me a little bit better than reporters that were maybe on a you know different level than I was um, in terms of the relatability. Mm. This also, by the way, benefited me with the action sports industry. And so I started writing business stories for the first time because there was this, you know, burgeoning surf, skateboard, snowboarding industry in Orange County and really in Southern California. And they had a huge distrust of the media because of how they were being covered. And so because, well, I'm, you know, I was also living with a skateboarder, but they trusted me and I developed you know, what I'd like to think is a good reputation among them because they also knew I wasn't going to kiss their butt and I wasn't going to, you know, just write about them because they were friends. It was very important for me to always be a very ethical reporter. Aside from Walter Cronkite, Barbara Walters was always a big icon for me. And one of the things I took from her when I would watch her in the 70s when she was doing hard news reporting is that she would always dress a little bit like the people she was interviewing. And so I sort of took that on board as well as far as you know, selecting items from my closet that I know people could connect with. So that was always important. Oh, I love it. So now you've, you've connected <laughs> the dots between fashion and journalism for us. The leap then, I will tell you what happened though too, is I had my way of dressing, which was a little bit different from my fellow journalists at the LA Times. And I got cornered one day in the hall by an editor and they were starting a different style section. She said, you know, it looks like you like to dress up. Do you ever want to write about fashion? And I was like, yeah, of course. Especially when I found out it was paying twice as much of, as what I was going to make covering city politics, which is unfortunate. <laughs> but I so, but I made the leap over. And then with that, it was like, oh, well, do you want to cover nightlife? Do you want to cover pop culture? And then there was in the 90s throughout Southern California, there were all these the sort of reemergence of, of different street tribes. And I started a column called The Scene where every week I would write about them, but I would write the history. In fact, one of my proudest moments in my journalistic career was when I wrote about skinheads, real skinheads, not the racist ones. And I talked about their history and everything. And I had psychologists write me saying, you know, thanking me because she had been basically telling this kid that he was screwed up and he didn't know what he was talking about because he kept insisting he wasn't a racist, even though he was a skinhead. And again, this is before you could Google things. This is, you know, this article completely shed new light. And the way I would get my information is I started traveling to London and other places by myself as soon as I could when I was 18. And I would buy these independently printed books. I was buying the Face magazine in the 80s. I was trying to get my information however I could through friends I would make while I would travel, through magazines I would read, you know, movies. I remember even sneaking into Quadrophenia when it came out in the theaters when I was eight or nine years old. So I was always a student of youth culture, street tribes. And so <laughs> that was very much a part of what I did as a journalist. And also later on, flash forward in my 30s, when I was teaching for about five years, I taught a class at a junior college in Orange County on street tribes. It was in the fashion department, but it was very much about that and the history, not just the clothing. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the clothing becomes a sort of a uniform and a cultural signifier of a belonging to a kind of community. But it's, it's, not the whole story. It's just no. part of the story. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, so you're an anthropologist of sorts. Yeah. And I mean, there have been times where I'll like call myself a cultural anthropologist. It sounds so lofty, <laughs> but I guess those things that make a cultural anthropologist are things that have always been a part of who I am. 
Yes. Well, so your your professional path is one that has not been a straight line of a single specialization. You've kind of done a bunch of different things. It sounds to me like I'm jealous. It seems to me like you've achieved some success. At the same time, you haven't limited your interest to a specific entrepreneurial endeavor. You've been able to do a bunch of different things. Can you help our listeners kind of wrap their heads around what you're trajectory has been like? Yeah, I'll try to keep it simple. So I was at the LA Times through most of my 20s. Then when the first tech bubble happened, I did work at a few sites. What I look back on, that was a great moment only because I realized my earning potential, which I took then when Condé Nast, right when they bought Fairchild Publications, which was Women's Wear Daily. That's the Bible of the fashion industry, or it was. It's been around for over 100 years. When their West Coast office, when they cleaned house there, uh, the only job I wanted was the West Coast bureau chief. And I went in there and, and interviewed for it and made my case, which was in part that you know, I had all this network throughout Southern California. I could bring in all kinds of freelancers. I could creative direct as well. I wasn't just a word person. So I started there in 2000 and the next five years were quite the golden years there. I left to start A plus R, which was a uh, complete shift. I which was basically furniture. Well, it was before we started doing furniture, but really modern design resource retailer with my then boyfriend. And we were just kind of done with our previous careers and wanting to do something different. Also during my thirties, when I was at Women's Wear, I became a partner in a few bars in Hollywood. This was part of the sort of a revival that was happening in Hollywood at that time. There was beauty bars, star shoes, vine. Then we expanded with beauty bar in Las Vegas. It was a a side project I did really, you know, I did it both financially, but also it was interesting to me just because of my previous history in in nightlife. It's not something I ever would advise people to go into because it's a crazy business, but it it suited me in my 30s. Let me put it that way, in that (laughs) period of my life. When I left Women's Wear, in part because the news industry was imploding because of advertising and all that and the internet, I did it with... A plus R already happening, but also having signed a contract for my first book. I always joke that I've retired from journalism, but like right now I'm working on my fourth book, so I'm not totally retired. It's kind of like something I do, else I do. And also because I had friends at Women's Wear Daily who went on to become editors at Bazaar and all these other magazines, when they would call me, come on, Rose, just do this feature. And like for Bazaar, I did a cover story on Kelly Wurstler on Chloe Seveny, or it would have to be a really good piece for them to get me to do it. So it sounds like you've, you've retired from a number of professions, but you've maintained your connection so that you can keep dabbling on your own terms whenever you want. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've been lucky, but I also, you know, what's the old adage? Luck is being ready when opportunity strikes. So I've been lucky that I've been able to do that because at times I could say yes, because I also wasn't financially dependent on that, you know, to write that article. Although I aspire and fantasize about being bored at home, I cannot stay doing that for very long. (laughs) You are a woman. I don't What am I trying to say? You and I are like two peas in a pod. Cut from the same cloth. Yes. Yeah, there you go. I'm trying to think of like the 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 best analogy, but yes, that's that's correct. Well, 
my mom says, she's like, you know, you were never like addicted to drugs or, you know, had these problems like other people, but you're addicted to action and you're addicted to just, yeah, doing stuff. And although, <laughs> you know, she's one to talk because I get it from her. So. Right. Anyways, she, yeah. She recognizes it. Look, look, looking in a mirror. <laughs> so let's talk. I want to talk about A plus R because this is a design podcast and that's your, yes, your yes. design thing and you're still doing it. So you are the co-proprietor of A plus R, which is a design retailer. You work alongside your husband, Andy. I want to know, yes. well, first of all, I, I want to know like what sparked your interest in design from, you know, fashion. I know you were very involved in a lot of creative things, so I can understand the attraction. But was there like a moment when you were like, oh, like furniture. This is really cool. I try to always pinpoint it because in some ways it was always on my radar growing up. We grew up with antiques. My mom was very much into antiques and I learned about where things were from, from a very young age. And then at the time in 2005, when Andy and I got together, that's when there was sort of this boom in product design by all these young designers around Mm -hmm. the world in a way that hadn't existed before. And and part of that was because blogs were just coming into their own. So people were starting to find out about Mm -hmm. things because of that. By the way, when we met, he was a documentary film editor before in his 20s. He was a sound engineer. So he's also somebody who's done a lot of different things. Even though we created careers which were very demanding of us and our time, and that was because we made it that way. We were both really intense that way. We were also getting a little bit tired of like working for the man, so mm-hmm. to speak, and wanting to do something else. So we met, we got together in January of 2005, immediately started traveling in the first six months to different places, Paris, Morocco, all these different trips we were taking. And when we were doing that, we were also finding things that we liked and buying it again, from a lot of these young designers we were starting to read about. So Andy was living in Spain and we, it was already talking about moving back to LA. He's English, but he lived in, in Los Angeles for, I think about almost two decades when we met and then moved to Spain for a few months. He was moving back and we were talking already about starting something. We didn't know what it was going to be, but we, it was going to be called A plus R, like A&R, Andy and Rose, you know, artists and repertoire, which is where you find new talent. It wasn't necessarily even about product design or a store at that moment, but we found, we did the, it was like the cart before the horse. <laughs> we found a little space where 1010, which was a kind of a famous tiny little mid-century store in Silver Lake across from Space on Nightclub. They were moving out and they were friends of ours. And Andy, it's so it's almost embarrassing when I retell the story because he came to me at Women's Wear Daily. We walked out in the hall. Remember, he had his, even his helmet, a motorcycle helmet under his arm. And he's like, so there's a space and we could just take it over. It's really cheap. And I'm like, well, what would we do with it? And he's like, I don't know. And we just sat there and he's like, well, we could sell the stuff that we've been buying on our travels. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> It was like, that was it. Like, we didn't have a business plan. We didn't think about it. So that was around June. We opened in December of that year. Oh, and I signed my contract for my first book that month as well, knowing already that I was going to be exiting Women's Wear Daily. I gave them three months notice. I stayed through the awards season so we could do all our awards coverage. And we started out, like I said, in a 200 square foot space, just with small items, jewelry, small decorative items that we were buying from all these places around the world and trying to figure out how to bring them in because there wasn't, they, they didn't even have distributors necessarily, or we would even go and visit, you know, England out in the countryside and meet some 
you know, girl who was making Snow White and Seven Dwarfs with rifles they were holding. And we would meet her at a pub and buy 12 of them and bring them back. And that kind of thing. It was so crazy gorilla. But people started coming to visit us because we had all this stuff. You know, and we would take chances with items. There was a really great, innovative design brand from San Francisco called Citizen Citizen. And Philip Wood, English guy, we met, we got on really well, and we would sell his items. Just, you know, it's just stuff like that. And so that's how our business started. Within a year, we figured out how to get online. There was no other design stores except for maybe one other one online at that time. We went from Silver Lake to Abikini when Abikini was just a lot of head shops. A few of our friends were starting to open up cool stores there. We decided to go check them out and we got a space. Within a couple of years, we outgrew that space, moved next door to the larger space. And then at the end of 2007, I think it was, we moved to La Brea. So as our business was growing and evolving more and more into furniture and lighting because a lot of the brands, Hay and Menu and Muto and other brands that didn't really have much furniture to speak of when we started carrying them, suddenly were very much going into those arenas. So we were growing all together. We did try two stores at one time and it was just more headaches than it was worth. We went into business for ourselves so we could also have a quality of life. Mm-hmm. And even though we work a lot, it was, it was putting a strain. And we constantly, throughout our business, try to take a step back and go, okay, wait, why are we doing this? We mm-hmm. like our staff to have a quality of life as well. We're constantly telling them, don't text us today. You're not working. You know, if they're not working, we want them to like not work. We want them to rest. Well, it just sounds like you're trying to maintain the, the meaningful quality of your business and not ex- sort of expand beyond what makes it personal and worth worthwhile. Would you characterize it that way? Well, yes, it is. I mean, we still like for people to know that there are two real people behind the, the business name, A plus R. That said, I mean, from 2006 onward, we have been shipping around the world and we have had a good enough business that much larger retailers that we compete with that carry some of our same brands have actually told some of our brands that we can't have certain products because they see us as competition with them, even though they might have hundreds of stores or dozens of stores. So it's been funny. So we do have a a very good, healthy business, thank God. But we worked for that as well in terms of just making sure we're not overdoing it. Even though we take chances in what we've bought over the years, we also try to be really smart about the way we've grown the business. You look tired. I take it the caffeine, toothpaste, and adrenaline face serum aren't working? Well, maybe you should ask Santa for a Nectar mattress this year. And if the big guy brings you another unicorn finger puppet, don't worry, because mattresses start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com today. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones 
portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker. Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Wow. So let me ask you, in addition to being a purveyor of design objects, furniture, and lighting, there are other initiatives. Yes. Salons, you know, discourse that you're kind of nurturing from the A plus R platform. Do you want to talk about some of those ancillary things? Yeah. I mean, we hold salon series with designers who were visiting from Denmark or England or whatever. And sometimes it was the designer saying, Hey, I'm coming out to LA for two weeks for vacation. You know, do you want to hang out? And I'd be like, yeah. And do you want to come speak? But it's important me to do that because it's partly why we got involved in A plus R because we were interested in the design process and learning more about the people who were creating these items and why and how. And at those salon series, I, I get to play Merv Griffin. I don't know if everybody knows who Merv Griffin was who listens <laughs> to your podcast, but I get to sit in the chair and interview the designer in the opposite chair, which is great. We've also had other events over the years part and parcel to even like, let's say the LA Design Festival, which has been a very developing festival for quite some time, but we, we try to be supportive. We try to, you know, participate with our opening night events. You know, one of my favorite was in the very early days of 3D printing, we managed to get some really phenomenal products from all around the world, a guitar that actually played and, you know, clothing that was being made with the 3D printing process. And again, these were really early days and we had a really amazing party and turnout because of it. So we try to find opportunities where we can spotlight design, include community, whether it's architects and interior designers, but also other people in the more expanded community based here in Los Angeles who are interested in design as well. Part of that is, you know, having a party, but also, you know, I think it's about also learning at the same time having fun doing so. Yeah, and you're building you're building and engaging with your community, which is also really important. Your Design Street Tribe, right? <laughs> Design Street Tribe, exactly. That's the new tribe, exactly. <laughs> and at our new location, we built a full kitchen in part because we wanted to be able to have parties, but also we've had and we will continue to have sit-down dinners with like, you know, 24 architects or lunches and Andy, my partner, is an excellent chef and probably should have gone into that career-wise. And so he's also made some really amazing meals for some of the architects we work with there. So it's it's kind of cool to be able to do that, you know, here. not just We're not just a showroom, but we are also... A hub. To, a hub, exactly. Yeah. And, and our business has evolved, too, because it's very much, you know become more of a trade business as much as, as a retail business. In fact, trade is about 70 to 80% of our business. Oh, wow. By trade, I mean offices, boutique hotels, or workspaces. Also, we work with interior designers on private residences, and we, we've done some art galleries in other countries as well. Well, that's that sounds exciting, diverse, and very fertile. <laughs> I, I want to talk about your creative process 
I'm trying to string together what the common thread is from all these different interests and jobs that you've held. And the one thing that comes to mind is editing. Yes. As a wordsmith, a buyer, a curator, a style maven, editing seems like it would have to be key. And and so I'm wondering, is it? And if so, can you illustrate what that might look like in your brain when you edit? (laughs) The edit or just having a really focused point of view is so critical. I mean, obviously it was in my journalism career because you had to consider space in terms of words. So every word mattered, every photo mattered. There was no room for superfluous words or, or photos. Same thing with books. And then in the showroom space in our business, even though we have more than 90 brands at this time, and there's a lot of stuff that comes our way that's amazing and beautiful and oh I even would love to have that in my own house does it make sense for a plus r and so it's a constant conversation with Andy and I between us to say you know does that make sense for us right now is that is that a plus r that's what we always say so that's inherently in an edit can I unpack that a little bit so if you're saying if you're saying your criteria question is is this a plus r there's an inherent understanding that you and Andy both have of what A plus R is. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm... What is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess see. that's okay. what I'm asking is like, yeah. how does one pare it down to the essence? Well, aside from, yeah, when you see, we know it like pornography, you know, you yeah. see it. Um, uh, <laughs> no, let's see. So, so yeah, we do, we carry new modern design. So practically speaking, I, I'm wondering like, so you and Andy both have like this really really inherent understanding of what the brand is. And then when you're confronted with items that may or may not fit, you, you have to go through an internal weeding process. And then at that point, is it just intuitive? Do you just know this is or isn't? It, it, yeah. I mean, we've all, it's been kind of amazing that in the 12 years we've been together, it's been maybe 5% of the time where we don't like where he's trying to convince me or I'm trying to convince him about something. Mm. And we, we definitely try to come to the table and to make an argument for it. And, you know, I, I admittedly, there's been times where we just wore the other person down <laughs> and where they just said, okay, fine, stock it. But by and large, you know, we try to be able to make a, an argument for why it, we should carry a certain yeah. line. And how far away style-wise, is A plus R from Andy and Rose. Is there any disconnect over the years? Have you personally, has your style evolved away from A plus R? Are you guys still like 100% or at 90% A plus R? Well, if you go into our house right now, it's all A plus R because we have made a very concerted effort when we moved into our new place three years ago to very much make it a showcase of what we do because we love we've always said everything we carry we love but that's very important to us that we personally love what we what we stock there as far as our personal taste Andy has probably had a longer affection for modern design in his personal life than I have I very much grew up like I said, as a kid with antiques, and then when I moved into my own place, I had a lot of mid-century kind of stuff, which wasn't, I suppose, not that far from here. But I also had a much more maximalist aesthetic, I had and still kind of have, than Andy. So 
my cave, the rose cave at at our house. (laughs) It's a very kind of glamorous space because I'd like to think it's glamorous because that's how I am. I can dress up in a very sort of over the top kind of way. I like to wear vintage sometimes. I, you know, you know, I guess I, You've got a flair for yeah, theater, I, lady. I, I, Just I, own it. <laughs> I got a flair. I got, that's, that's, that's a very good way of describing it. Yes. So sometimes I can go really minimal, but I also love to go over the top too. I, can, I like to get my drag on whenever I can, you know, so may, from, from the cat eyes to the red lipstick, to the stilettos and the jewels. Yeah, I definitely do that. So, so I try to maintain that in my cave. So, and we have a seven-year-old also, by the way, a seven and a half-year-old. So, you know, but, but again, her room is very A plus R, but also we wouldn't really say minimal because, you know, she also likes her stuff. <laughs> like her mom. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Kids. Let's talk about that. Yes. You and you and Andy adopted your daughter. Yes. So, and I, I, I've seen photos of your lovely family, but I would, I would like to know, like, what did you learn in that process? And, and what was that process like for you? Well, yeah, when I met Andy, I already knew I wasn't going to be able to carry a child biologically because of various endometriosis and, and eventually I had a hysterectomy. So I'm very open about this because I've written about it for Harper's Bazaar and other places. So I don't mind talking about it. We set out to adopt. And what we learned in the course of those five years until we got Nina is that it is very much a industry of chaos in this country, but I've also learned in other countries too. So it's very difficult there's no straight path, even though you think that you're going to be the most informed person in the world and act the quickest and learn the quickest. It's it's crazy. We did eventually, though, we were able to adopt Nina at birth. I was in the room when she was born, which was very a very thrilling experience. She's amazing. And that from the get-go, I mean, as soon as we had her legally, we, we took her on a trip. So she's been traveling with us forever. She has gone to some of the design shows in other countries with us. She's a really good traveler. In fact, we're taking her to Salone in Milan in April and on the condition that she has to start taking pictures and record the experience. <laughs> so, nice. Get her started so setting her on, on that right. track. Yes. No, it's hilarious. She is so good. And she'll come in and she'll like merchandise stuff in the store and she'll, you know, she we had this big sale recently and she was handing out baskets to the, to the people, you know, that were shopping. And so she's really fantastic. Oh man, you're way ahead of me. Um, My daughter's six and I still can't get her to do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, she loves doing it. So, but yeah, it was, it was quite a process. What I learned from it, which frankly could be said about how I've approached other, other things is just persistence is so key and research and patience and being able to be nimble. And frankly, those are the same tenets that I would apply to other aspects of my life, my career, my personal life. You know, being nimble is so, so very important. And and look, when you think about even, I mean, I know this is a funny leap because we're talking about my kid right now, but even the design world, you have got to be nimble in that world. And journalism, you have to be nimble and you have to be persistent and patient. So all those, those qualities really apply across, I guess, all those areas in my life. Well, I love that you also said research because I -hmm. feel like if you're really informed, that makes being nimble that much more easy because you can think on the fly because you've got all the information in your your brain already and you can work with that. But if you're in a position of like just not knowing – then it's really hard to make those decisions on anything other than just straight intuition. 
No, absolutely. And I'm always, always impressing this with our team. I like to think we've always been known because we can talk about our product in a way like, you know, we have gone into some of our competitor stores and they can't tell us about the products. And, you know, I don't want that anybody to have that experience when they come into A plus R. If you don't know the answer to something, don't BS it because they will know and they will Mm -hmm. never come back. And I'd rather that you're honest about it. And as soon as they leave, you get online and you learn about it. So that is just so important. Yeah. The research thing. I mean, look, nothing's worse than reading an article about a subject matter and you can tell the journalist doesn't know shit about (laughs) the topic. That's the worst. Same sister. Yeah. Yeah. Same. All of my work in the TV world and yeah. design and home improvement, I can yeah. tell when people don't know what they're talking about or when the producers produced a show and they really were not coming from an, an angle of expertise, you know? Yeah. And it's so frustrating because they're putting it out there as though it's it's fact. <laughs> it's bullshit. It's And I always, bullshit. by the way, when I talk to, <laughs> to students, either design students or fashion students, I, I always bring this up as well. The, one of my anecdotes is a, a celebrity stylist who I wrote about and everything a lot. And she said once, yeah, I'm doing that whole, you know, 1970s breakfast at Tiffany's thing. And I'm just sitting there. I mean, aside from the fact that it's my favorite movie, I'm like, Oh my God, that neither one of those things have anything to do with each other. It's like, what? so, so that drives me crazy when I hear fashion people say that, when I hear design people say that, when, I mean, oh, let's, then don't even get me started with, you know, people talking about politics too. I, that it's, <laughs> Rose Cave, I'm have a bitch yeah, sesh I mean, I don't, just, I, I don't understand, <laughs> in, in my opinion, I don't understand the idea of, something and not understanding the where it came from or how it came to be or the history that came before it so you can truly understand like where that thing exists and why and and the rest of it yeah and what's crazy and and by the way I don't understand when somebody's talking bullshit now because the thing is it's so easy to like go go to the bathroom and look it up on your iPhone, you're in there anyways, looking at, you know, looking at Instagram, you might as well spend some time actually learning something. So that's the thing. It just drives me crazy. I mean, but that happens even on a very basic level. I'll, you know, I've had people I'm interviewing for a job position. I've done already three phoners with them. They come in front of me and they haven't even looked at my website. And I'm like, oh my God, we're stopping the interview right now. The fact that you couldn't even do it on your way here on your phone. No, I don't, you're not working for me, you know, that kind of thing. But you know, yeah. <laughs> by the way, I won't say kids today either. I refuse to say that because as I always point out to Andy, I'm like, not everybody in your class had it going on. There was always a small group of people who had it going on. It was like that then. It's like that now. It would be like that when our kid is older. So, you know, you just have to surround yourself with people who know what's going on. Well, that and that is a mm-hmm. good advice for the ages. And that brings me to my <laughs> next question, which is that I find that you know, throughout the various chapters and lessons of life, bits of advice that we may have picked up from all different places comes to mind more frequently when it's needed. And so this is kind of a two-part question. Like, what's going on in your life right now? And what's the advice that keeps coming up for you that applies to it? Uh, the advice that people are seeking or the advice that I'm... No, for you, maybe okay. something, some bit of wisdom that you've gathered from your years... That seems ah, okay. to really apply to your life in this particular moment. Hmm, that's a very good question. You know, I I think at this time in my life, again, because of having a child in my life and having 
all these, all this job experience, I guess, behind me in terms of the things I've done, I've learned that it's okay if I don't stay up all night to finish something. I know that sounds, I mean, I mean, no, I mean, that's wonderful. Ah, oh, I'm going to bed. God damn it. <laughs> And look, I don't regret all the many, many, many countless nights that I did do that. But I have gotten a little bit more of a reality check now that, you know what, if, you know, whatever, that social media posting doesn't happen right this minute, or if, you know, I don't dot every I and cross every T tonight, and I get back to it with a fresh eye in the morning, it's okay. I think I was a little bit more, I don't want to say obsessive compulsive about having that done before I'd go to bed before, but maybe I was a little bit. I have learned that I need to just like (laughs) unplug, uh, you know, and it's okay to do that. And I have been doing that a little bit better in the last couple of years, you know, as far as like not being online at all for a whole Saturday. And and now I'm trying to. Isn't it glorious? Yeah, it is. It's very green. And, you know, and I, and Andy, I'm still trying to like, you know, twist his arm into that reality, even though he says he's already there. I'm like, no, you're not. But but yeah. I've been putting my phone on airplane mode when I'm not in an airplane. And then if I forget to put it back on regular mode, I'm fine. Like, I'm okay with that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I do that every night. I do feel like, you know, a little bit like, okay, I'm going to take a moment and that's okay. (laughs) Good. All right. Well, let's, I'll take that advice. I think everyone could use a moment. <laughs> take a moment and that's okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. So here's a big kind of long-term question. What's, what's one thing that you've got to just do, accomplish or experience before you die? Hmm. That's an interesting thing. Cause I've always, always tried to live my life that if I die tomorrow, I wouldn't like be bummed I didn't get to do something. Oh. That's the thing. You got to do that, you know, every day. It could be your last. As far as a personal accomplishment, God, it's, I hate to cop out, but I'm not really sure because I feel like I've gone after whatever I really wanted to do. I think that's our answer right there is that you've, yeah, lived, think- you've lived every every day, every moment, every month doing what you wanted to do. And that means you don't have a long list of undone things, which is actually pretty damn badass. So congrats to you. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to get off the phone right now and go, oh, yeah, there was that one. <laughs> so what about A plus R? What's the future of A plus R look like? Well, A plus R, we're at, at Rowan downtown for the next you know, decade. Our contract, our lease is for a 10-year lease, and we're very happy with that. It's really about continuing to expand our trade and contract business. We have a really chic new website finally going up at the end of the spring, so I'm very excited about that. It's about you know continuing our programming that we are already starting with the salon series, more lunches and dinners with you know people, expanding our business as we have been, you know, beyond Southern California, beyond California. We're not particularly interested in in opening up more brick and mortar spaces because we actually don't have to. We are pretty slammed without that. But, but really just sort of using it as a platform for both business and for, I guess the pleasure is business related, but really, you know, being able to do, you know, more of these community sort of activities that we have been doing. Well, speaking of all the things that you're doing with A plus R, is there something coming up in the next month or two that you want our listeners to know about? 
in June, we're, we're nailing down the day right now, but we are definitely going to have Lee Broom here from London doing also a salon talk. Excellent. Yeah. And yeah, I guess between now and then, I would say just stay tuned to our social media at A Plus Art Design. And because there'll probably be some more things that we'll be confirming that we can talk about at, you know, or we'd love to have people over to, to experience as well. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really exciting. We had Lee on the podcast already. He's yes. really cool. I like I like him a lot. Well, Rose, this has been super awesome. Thank you so much for for being so candid and sharing all of your Thank you so much too. experience. Thanks, Rose. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, so I am mad at everyone who told me when I was growing up that I had to pick one thing and get really good at it and do that for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, that's not what I'm interested in. That's not how my brain works. That's not what I want to do. And I love, love, love that she never felt constricted by that. I mean, she had a mom who was a great role model who did a bunch of stuff. I mean, it sounds like her dad was pretty much a specialist in his career. But the fact that she's been able to sort of effortlessly flit between so many of her passions and curiosities is exciting to me. I want to keep doing that myself. Yes. Yeah. I think growing up, too, I also had that thing where, like, you you know, you get a job and then you work at that job until you die. <laughs> and that's just how right. it is. And hopefully, you know, there's a retirement right. plan associated with that job and a pension. <laughs> but as I got older, I started thinking about what makes me happy and what I enjoy doing and tried to kind of create a path for myself that made more sense so that my mm-hmm. well-being and my soul would be nourished yeah (laughs) um and i think she kind of she it sounded like she she knew from a very young age though that she wanted to be a journalist so she was like on that trajectory and but it 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 didn't seem like she was thrown off when she decided to change careers so she was able to kind of go with the flow yeah so going with the flow is something you and i started off talking about before we got on the phone with rose and Mm -hmm. i mean just in the words of terry cruz She's been riding the log, it sounds like. I was thinking about that the whole time. <laughs> Don't you think? <laughs> I think about that all the time. I'm like, okay, I should ride the log. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and it sounds aw- like it doesn't sound like it's not a nice analogy to think about. Like I just the word log is just one of those words I don't particularly like. <laughs> Going with the flow is a little bit more but, <laughs> more poetic maybe, but <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's it sounds more fun and exciting to ride a log down a river. Yes, and then sometimes I catch myself the riding flow. the log with like all of these suitcases, like all this baggage and debris that I picked up along the way, and I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna put some <laughs> of this stuff down. I don't need to t- carry it with me right now. <laughs> Just gonna get in the way. Oh my god. So. I do want to say that Rose has created with alongside Andy this in really incredible brand. I mean, A plus R, I started my site back in 2006. And so once they got a website, they were on my radar. So what distinguishes them, I think, from other websites is that they do such a good job of curating. And it does feel like somebody like a designer is personally picking Products. Well, I remember when they moved in and opened up that little shop in the in Silver Lake across from Spaceland. It was 
I was living here in Los Angeles and it was exciting. It was one of the only East Side venues that had, first of all, really cool sort of design stuff from around the world. But you're right, the curatorial agenda had such a focused point of view that, you know, those feelings when you go into a store and you're like, I could buy anything here and it'll make an excellent gift. Like, I will not be embarrassed. (laughs) I will know that it's fucking cool. It's it's been like that <laughs> always. Yeah, and I I do also feel like when you go to their website and you look at the selections that they've made, not only just gifts, but like you, like they furnish their whole house with what they have in their store. And I think you can do that. It doesn't feel like it's one brand, you know, or one specific aesthetic. I mean, they definitely have like a, a they have like a sense of style. But it doesn't feel like it's all the same kind of stuff over and over again. Yeah. And I love that they really focus on fresh, young, modern designers. Because there's so many websites out there that are just feel like giant online corporations that have like everything that was ever made that's modern. (laughs) Right. Um, And instead, like Andy and Rose, just they really focus in on like what they think is important and making sure is this you know a plus r i don't know but if it is we you know we want it in our store so i appreciate that i also appreciate her indomitable spirit and that you know i've read a few of her articles about the struggle to become a mother and the ups and downs of going through the adoption process which is not easy and there was heartbreak and chaos along the way and obviously There must have been some disappointment in realizing that she couldn't have children biologically. But did you ever, like, I didn't even get one iota of disappointment or regret from her voice or her tone or any of her, like, not even a struggle. It it doesn't sound like she just has this really, like, vivacious, forward-looking, energetic spirit that I just want to steal some of it from myself (laughs) (laughs) you know I'm sure behind the scenes there were some difficult times but I I don't know I just get the sense that like they have a beautiful family they do and I think there's a lot to be grateful for and she has done a lot and she's seen a lot and she's experienced a lot and now she has this amazing family so there's just so much good stuff that it's hard to dwell you know Yeah. She does seem to always be looking forward, doesn't she? Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and learn more about Rose's work. You can always connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcasts. We love hearing from you guys. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris and Alex Perez with music by L1011. One for mom and one for me. Hey, beautiful. Ulta Beauty invites you to see the joy this holiday season with top gifts for everyone on your list, including you. Discover Black Friday beauty deals all week long from brands like Tarte, Colourpop, First Aid Beauty, and more. Shop in store, online, or try curbside pickup today. Ulta Beauty. 
The possibilities are beautiful. 